If you brought a Bible today, I would love to honor that and have you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the most inspired, revered, savored, quoted writing on love in all of human history is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That was a lot of hype, wasn't it? But it's true, man. It's true. It's indisputable. 1 Corinthians 13 is indelibly fixated uh, around the world as really the, the clarion call to what love is, how love, when it's described, um, it's, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So I wanted today, since I just kind of hydroplane past it last week, we won't do this every week as we talk about all you need is love, but I do want us today to read from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13, and it's on the screen. I'm going to read the entire chapter. Here we go. If I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It is, uh, is not boastful. It's not arrogant. It's not rude or self-seeking. It's not irritable and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, uh, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, thank God, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. Today, I want us to look at this very concept. For, let me finish. For now, we, only, we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Many of you had this read at a wedding that you attended or at your very own wedding. And let me tell you, with all the rivalry and the factions and the problems that the church was having in Corinth, Paul did not write those words thinking, hey, I hope that this will be read at a wedding in Mississippi in 2023. Uh, this, in fact, was a, a warning call for them. It was a challenge for them as he wrote these words to them. It was a, a slap in the face, if you will. And he's saying, you're getting it wrong. You're getting love wrong. And so, as any good teacher would have to do, he's telling them what love is. And he tells them what love is not. Because we need the what it's not part, don't we? But do we today, let me ask you. We're going to focus on this, this, this phrase, this truth, this invitation from 1 Corinthians 13. It says, love does not envy. Now, isn't it good that we don't really struggle with that? With all the advancements in education and te technology, we have surpassed, we've defeated envy. Isn't it good? I mean, we have contented hearts and quiet spirits. We have modest souls. We have arrived thanks to the technology, thanks to education. We don't envy, do we? Listen, we do. We do envy, and it's a great battle. There's some components of envy among them is discontentment and resentment and comparison. Now it's getting real, isn't it? It's so easy. And by the way, there's a fine line between wanting to be the best you can be and wanting to be somebody else. It's a line that we cross uh, way too often. Instead of living your life, the life that is stretched out before you, you covet someone else's story. No matter how hard you try, someone 
always has more. Someone is going to be more beautiful than you. Someone's going to be smarter than you. Someone's going to have more than you have. Someone's going to have more followers and flatter abs, no matter how hard you try. And envy sneaks itself into us. Discontentment, resentment, and comparison. I want to give you this morning, note takers, here's your cue. I want to give you three components of comparison. We struggle with comparison in many ways. Discontentment, resentment, and then comparison. Your envy and mine is fueled by our propensity to compare ourselves to other people. One component of comparison is material comparison. Uh, He posts a picture of his truck and you don't like your car anymore. She posts a picture of the brownies she's made, and you're not looking at her brownies. You're looking at the kitchen. You're looking at the countertops and the cupboard and the chalkboard with the inspirational quote, and you want what you don't like your stuff as much anymore. They, they take a picture of their vacation at the beach, the second one they've had this month, and they post, the caption says, so good to get away. I've been pouring my life out for other people. It's so good to get away. This is their second trip to the beach this month but they still say that and you can't afford to go to the lake house there's material comparison there's relational comparison you see a post and you're like you're thinking hey these are my good friends and they didn't invite you they're your friends they're your good friends but you're not in the picture maybe even worse this ever happened to you you're in the picture but they cropped you out you're like hey that like i was there that's my shoulder you see that that's my shoulder they they cut you out of the picture That's relational comparison, and relational comparison happens uh, in a few months when we get Christmas cards from people, and you you see those families, they're all dressed like the dog is dressed alike, and they're standing in front of a barn. They don't have a barn, and and you see that, and you're like, you know, that's not your family. All the holidays, you're what? You're at each other's throat. You're like literally grabbing the necks of people in your family. Like, y'all do that. Help us out, okay? Do your Christmas card this year. Grab each other by the neck, all right? No barns, no dogs, nobody's dressed like. Just grab each other by the neck, take a picture, and send that as your Christmas card. We compare. Envy is, is fueled by comparison. There's material comparison. There's relational comparison. There's circumstantial comparison. Uh, I want a job that gives, gives me more significance. I want a job like they have where I can find more freedom. Let me be honest. I'm a preacher. I'm stating the obvious, but I work on the weekends. Most people don't work on the weekends. So I see photos. I just, I've learned to stay off social media. Susan keeps me accountable here. But I just try to stay off social media. Even if I'm posting, I'm not necessarily looking at your post on the weekends. Because I work on the weekends. Long Saturdays often are long and hard. The last several have had weddings and funerals. Even on the same day. It's, it's Saturday and Sunday or work days for me. So you're at your football tailgate or your beach villa or your mountain chalet and I don't have a tailgate a villa or a chalet and I'm here working on the weekends I'm at the church working for God you're out there serving the devil and so I I don't look and see what you're doing this hit me just uh not this past weekend but the weekend before two weeks ago um a friend of mine by the way let's go back let me go forward a friend of mine sent this to me a couple of Sundays ago when you're halfway around the world and waiting for Robert to get up and preach I should be happy, I should be happy that he's going to tune into Fondren Church online on Sunday morning. But you know what I did? I, clergy confession, I envied that he, father and son, were together 
uh, over in uh, Greek Island somewhere. I envy that. Let me back up. Envy is wanting what you don't have. Feeling like what you have is not enough. And then resenting, notice my phrase here, this carefully crafted, resenting what others seem to have. Because you're looking, as one writer says, you're looking at someone's highlight reel. And you know technology and education, all the advancements, haven't made it worse. You don't need a, you don't need a preacher to tell you what the sociologists have said. But when we compare, our comparison has gotten worse today. Far worse than it was back then. But envy is it's wanting what you don't have, feeling like what you have is not enough, and resenting what others, say it with me, seem to have. Let me give you a tool for your toolbox. It's what they seem to have. And this is envy, and it, it can get the best of us. And so discontentment and resentment fueled by comparison, comparing ourselves materially with other people, comparing ourselves relationally with other people, comparing ourselves circumstantially with others. They've got this. They've got this job. They have that freedom. Let me get real for a minute and all joking aside. This was a conversation uh, late last night for us, but I watched a conference online this week, the Thrive Conference for Christian Leaders. And one of the keynote speakers was sitting on the edge of the stage for a little bit of swag, and he was unveiling his own heart. And he said, relationships can be hard and you know that right relationships can be hard just nod your head if we're like you've experienced hurt the average person loses seven meaningful relationships in a lifetime seven i don't know where you are and i don't want your mind to go to, don't start counting during the sermon but uh it's it's you know it life can take a toll and there's divorce and there's betrayal and there's people walking out and there's loss and it's it's hard the average person loses seven relationships in a lifetime do you know how many relationships an average pastor loses seven per year and I read that and Susan and I talked about that and it's easy for me to become envious and to want I don't want your sympathy but to want a job with less pain leaders future leaders look at me if you sign up to love and serve people you're going to experience pain and I, can, I have a choice before me. I'm just being real. Clergy confession, no joking. I have a choice before me. I can live the life that God has called me to live and embrace it and put my heart into it. Or I can envy other people and something easier. And that very thing, that choice, that fork in the road has almost made me want to quit sometimes. And so comparison, envy is fueled by comparison. This is not beautiful poetry to be read at a wedding in our day. I mean, if it's, it's good to be read at weddings. I'm not discounting that, but that's not the intention of it, of course. But it was written to the church in Corinth. And we've done, we, most of the year, we've been uh, looking at the church in Corinth. Uh, how many times am I going to look at my friend in the pool? I mean, I'm just, I'm just making it worse. Um, here's what he would say. Remember this? He says, because you are still worldly. For since there's envy, what envy and strife, envy always goes with strife. If you look at the word envy in the New Testament, it's coupled with strife. Batman and Robin, Shaq and Kobe, all your, all your duos, Paul and Timothy, you know, envy and strife, envy and strife. There's envy and strife among you. If you envy other people, there'll be strife among you. If a group of people are envying other people, there will be strife among them. Envy and strife among you, are you not worldly and behaving like mere humans. Uh, Paul would call them carnal Christians. 
We have to leave room. Leave room, some of you young budding theologians. Leave room in your theology for carnal Christians. Someone who's accepted Christ, but they're not growing in Christ. And Paul is saying, I don't want you to live in this misery. I want you to know what love is, and I want you to know what love is not. And so in the scripture, he says this repeatedly. Envy and strife, envy and strife is throughout the New Testament. But he says, you envy and you boast and you're puffed up. You envy and you boast and you're puffed up. Envy is something that you do. Boasting is something that you do. I was having fun on the all staff text thread last night and I sent my alma mater's final score, 48 to 7, I believe it was. And I said, Larry, post this on social media. He responded, our communication guy, Larry, said, uh, Love does not boast. <laughs> Isn't that good? He used the scripture against me, against the senior pastor. Larry was a great staff member. I really enjoyed <laughs> having him. He served faithfully for almost a couple years here. Just kidding, Larry's right there. Love you, bro. But love, love doesn't boast, but you envy, you boast, and you're puffed up. You envy, envy something you do. Boasting is something that you do, and apparently I was trying to do. You envy, you boast, but you're puffed up. It's something that you are. And it's colorful language in the Greek, in the English, any, any language translate. You're puffed up. The, the idea, the connotations there is like a, you can be like a big, beautiful balloon. You can be big and impressive on the outside, but inside you're full of hot air and you're going to get popped. And you and I get to decide how we want to live. And if you're strutting your stuff and your team won and things are going your way, listen to me. You can be like the balloon and you can choose to be like the balloon. Impressive on the outside. Big and impressive on the outside. But inside full of hot air and ready to be popped. And this is this colorful language that he gives to us. So I want us to look this morning at envy and that love does not envy. Here's the thing. Love, or rather envy, we can't get rid of it by trying to dismiss the feelings of envy. There are certain things you can do to mitigate it, to lessen it, to make it less magnified in your thoughts and your hearts. But it's not enough to, to, you know, stifling it and stuffing it down and repressing it and suppressing it is not going to work. Paul, Paul wants you to know, God through Paul wants us to know that love is what defeats envy. So let's think about it biblically before we think about it practically. Really, the first sin, not counting Adam and Eve, although some envy was involved, but uh, the first sin, remember Genesis 1 and 2, uh, beautiful. And God creates as, as the world is intended to be, and they walked with God in the cool of the day. Wouldn't that be cool to walk with God? Wouldn't that be too cool to experience a cool day? Anybody? They walked with God in the coolness of the day, and they enjoyed favor with God and with each other, but then they sinned, and sin separated them from God. And then we see the introduction of sin. But in chapter 4, because sin has consequences, sin has collateral damage. I meet with families. I have counselor friends who meet with families. Can I tell you through pain that sin has collateral damages? It's not just a man's sin. It's not just a woman's sin. It's our, how our sin affects other people, especially our families. And we see that God invented love and God instituted the family as a good thing. 
But sin broke that. And we see early in Genesis chapter 4 the story of two brothers. You've heard about them, haven't you? Cain and Abel. And they both bring offerings to God. Cain is the older brother. Abel, A-B-E-L, is the younger brother. Cain and Abel both bring offerings to God. But younger brother Abel's offering, it was first. It was best. It was choice portions. It was the, the, the premium grain. It was the firstborn of the livestock. There was something to it. He did it God's way. When we talk about giving, we challenge you. Uh, we're not afraid to talk about money because nothing grips our hearts like money. Uh, all of us. It's such a source of our security, and therefore it's such a source of our anxiety. But we are to, as an act of worship, we're to give God our first and our best, and then leftovers are for us and living, but we give God our first and our best, and Abel did that, but older brother Cain did not. What did he do? He went through the motions. And so Abel enjoyed an intimacy with God, and what did Cain do? He looked over, and he began to resent his younger brother Abel. Now think about that. Cain could have, here's what he could have done. In his pain, he could have assessed his own heart. He could have examined his motives and he could have made a confession of his sin. But you know what Cain did? It's you and I at our worst. You and I at our worst, we, we do what Cain did. Cain in his pain didn't use it to examine his motives and go to the source. The problem, he concluded, was not himself. It was his brother. So he would look at his brother and feel bad about himself. So much so, he harbored that in him. That envy that you harbor, that discontentment, that resentment, that comparison that you hide within, it leads to great ugliness. And it did for Cain. And he looked over one day and he surmised, he conjectured, he looked over and said, what would it, like, what would it be like to be without my little brother Abel? And God speaks to older brother Cain. The one who was just going through the motions. The one who didn't examine his pain to see what the motives really were. To see, who he, see what, the, what the root of it was. And God says to him, why are you so angry, Cain? Why is your face so downcast? Sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. You must rule over it. And Cain greeted God's invitation, his warning with what? Anybody know? Cain greeted it with silence. The silence of Cain. He could have confessed. He could have made it right. But he greeted God's invitation and warning with stark silence. And it was the silence of Cain. It was his envy that doomed him and killed a brother. And God would say, the one who invented love and instituted the family, said the blood of Abel cries out from the ground to me. Chilling words, isn't it? Chilling words from the scripture. The blood of Abel cries out from the ground to me. Murder, hatred, envy, and strife, all of it is an affront to God. Ultimately, here's what that says to me. I just want to drive, maybe it's too much for Labor Day weekend. But uh, you're ultimately accountable to God in all your relationships, in all the ways that you love and don't love. You are ultimately, and I, we are ultimately accountable to God. This blood cries out from the ground, Abel's blood, to me, God says. There's a green thread of envy throughout the scripture. Sarah envied Hagar. You have Isaac and Ishmael. You, you have Leah and Rachel. You have Joseph being envied by his brothers and Moses being envied uh, by Miriam and Aaron. Um, 
Ahab, this king of the Bible, covets and envies Naboth's vineyard. Paul would say in Philippians 1.14, this has perplexed me for years. Paul would say in Philippians 14 that some preach Christ out of envy. It happens today. So there's this green thread of envy. It was the first, really the first sin, first early sin of the scripture. And then we see this green thread of envy throughout the Bible. But here is what I want to set before you because we preach the gospel at Fondren Church. It's central to every sermon and everything that we do here. There was once a man who lived, a God-man, who came to break the back of envy. He would live in such a way such a compelling magnetic way that people were drawn to him. Envy from others would ultimately kill him. But he lived and he taught in such a way, and it's really funny. Um, You hear me preach this from time to time if you've been around, but man, the Bible doesn't airbrush its stories. This is not a, 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 you know, story after story of superheroes who get it all right. And we see early on that these brothers, uh, James and John, here we go with brothers again. Nobody dies in this one, but James and John, they come to Jesus one day and they're like, hey, can one of us sit, you know, we were just thinking, Jesus, can one of us in the great day, can one of us sit on your left hand and one of us sit on your right? I love what Matthew does. Matthew, he records that their mommy came and asked if they could sit there. You know, anybody ever call you a mommy's boy? It's um, not a compliment. Um, Good to have a close relationship with your mom if you can, but mommy's boys, James and John, the mommy came to Jesus and said, hey, you know, in that great day, can one of my sons sit on your left? Can one of them sit on the right? The other 10 disciples, they were angry at James and John, not because they had requested that, but because they did it first. And Jesus, in response, says, can you drink from the cup that I'm about to drink? They saw the crowds. They wanted the glory. And Jesus was like, I'm about to die. And Jesus said in this passage, Matthew records it, Mark records it as well. In Mark 10, he puts it like this. You see the Gentiles and they rule over them. It is not to be so with you. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve other people and to give his life a ransom for many. So therefore you dot, dot, dot. Here's the thing. We're preaching about envy, how love does not envy. But here's what I want to say to you. We look at Jesus and we see that he came and he is giving us, as he gave them, a whole new scorecard. So how will you live? How will you keep score? If you keep score the wrong way, you will live a life of envy. You will live a life of envy and strife and you will not understand love. But if you follow Jesus and change the scorecard and realize, and by the way, when when we talk about giving your life to Jesus and handing it over to him, he'll take care of you. When you give yourself to him, he'll take care of you. I know self-care is a big thing. We practice self-care. That's a whole different sermon series. Self-care is really important. I'm not mocking that. I'm just saying, give your life. Whoever shall save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life, in the end, it will be saved. Give yourself fully to him. Change your scorecard. Jesus is saying, I'm inviting you to live an entirely different way. To make your life about love. To make your life about love that serves other people. That seeks to equip and ennoble and encourage and stretch and love and give and serve to other people. Make your life about that and watch this. Well, just watch what I do. 
change the scorecard. And so you and I are not going to be able to replace envy by suppressing and repressing and stifling those feelings inside. We are going to replace envy with love. And that's the invitation that Jesus gives us. So when it comes to changing the scorecard, I want to talk to you a little bit about that and what I've learned in my own life. Here's what I want to say. Envy is what? What is it? It's wanting what you don't have. Um, it's you know, feeling like what you have is not enough. And it's resenting other people who seem to have what you have. That's what envy is. But we need to know that there's competition, right? And there's good and healthy competition. I'm, I'm going to say this to everybody, especially the, any of the athletes in the room. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Daniel Wagner preached this in the early part of the summer. By the way, greed says, I want more, and envy says, I want, I want you to have less. That's why envy is so dangerous. Greed says, I want more, and that's not good. Read Luke chapter 12. He told, told a story about barns and storehouses and a man, and he warned him. He said, guard your hearts against greed. So I'm not here to celebrate greed, but I'm just saying there's a component to it that it doesn't possess, that envy possesses. Greed, I want more. Envy, I want you to have less. By the way, that's not love. You don't love someone if they succeed and they, they have blessing and they have favor and you feel diminished. What is it back to Jesus? Always go back to Jesus. The religious leaders, Jesus, uh, they loved him and they followed him. And he had crowds of people and he could heal and he could teach and he could live in a most revolutionary way. And the religious leaders didn't, they didn't soar in happiness of that. They felt diminished. It was envy that killed Jesus. Greed, I want more. Guard your hearts against it, Luke 12. But envy, there's something even more dangerous. And it's why it leads us to strife. And there could be blood on the ground. I want you to have less. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians 9. I was talking about uh, competition and how we do compare ourselves. But there's a healthy competition in Corinth. I'm pretty sure Daniel Wagner preached this uh, back several, a couple of months ago. But th they had games in Corinth, these, Olymp these battles, and it was the... Uh, prelude to the olympic games very much like the olympics if it weren't for these games in corinth uh, i don't even know if we would have the olympics as they exist today here's what he writes and says don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race but only one receives the prize run in such a way to win the prize now everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything they do it to receive a perishable crown but we an imperishable crown so i do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air instead i discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others i myself will not be disqualified the king james says i buffet my body the mississippi says i buffet my body but here he's saying, hey, self-control and competition, there is a winner, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's good, look at me, there's good and healthy competition. But it's easy for us to see people as our competition. And a competitor is someone that we endlessly compare ourselves with. Think of relationships like this, circle of oneness and a circle of rivals. I know you don't live your life, you know, walking around in a circle. And hopefully you don't, you know, doodle on your notepads circle of oneness circle of right but we all have people that are in our family people that we love and it's it's valuable it, it's important can i just say that on labor day weekend it's it's really good to have a circle of oneness my oldest son who's at the beach uh, this weekend he texted me earlier part of the week and he said hey you know i borrowed your c.s lewis book surprised by joy is it okay if i mark mark it up and i'm like 
That must be a rhetorical question. I'm just so proud that he's reading C.S. Lewis. I'm so proud that he's reading it and wanting to mark it up. That made me proud. Your circle of oneness, my circle of oneness, when they are learning and growing, you are learning and growing. Like you get great joy. You're not, your life isn't diminished. You're enhanced. Am I right, parents? When your kids are doing something great, your life is enhanced. My wife and I got a text from our daughter this weekend. Can I, can I boast? Love does not boast, but let me boast real quick. Uh, she just said out of the blue, we're in bed. It's 11 o'clock at night, I think, after. And we both look at our phones, and she said, we, which we shouldn't have had bedside, but we did that night, and we look at our phones, and it's our daughter Haley saying, I love you both. I'm so thankful to have y'all. I shared that with my men's group, and I was about to cry Friday morning, and Chaney, y'all know Chaney, he's in my group. He cracked a joke um, and uh, ruined the mood of everything. So, but... <laughs> But um, Cheney's at the beach today, too, not with my son. But, um, it, it, yeah, that helped me not to cry in my men's group. But, man, that, look, look here's, here's my point. The circle of oneness, it's like, it, that's, that's good stuff. And cultivate that and don't take that for granted. And that, that's going to be your greatest source of pain, but it's also going to be your greatest source of joy. I just shared, too, when you get a text from your daughter, when you get a text from your son, this is, like, we're reveling in this, and it's a good thing. That's your circle of oneness, and it's much easier in your circle of oneness when someone does well, when you, they rejoice, you rejoice with them. When they weep, you weep with them. But there's also a circle of rivals, so let's be candid. A circle of rivals are people in your life, and they, when they experience the blessing and success and favor, even from God, it doesn't enhance your well-being, it diminishes it. And you're seeking for them not. Greed, greed, I want more envy, I want you to have less. You want them to fail. And I know we're Christian people at church kind of early in the morning on a Labor Day weekend, so we may, not be, uh, we may be too spiritual to confess something like this, but I just want to puncture you a little bit. Whoever among us has a circle of rivals or you have some people and for some of you it's super easy i may get an email from you this week where you know the, who the rival is and you you're eat up with envy so i want to give all of us though something that's helped me that's biblical and it's helped me through the years first of all let jesus's love drive out envy in your life let the good news of the gospel and let let's love his way let's be a servant let's seek to equip ennoble encourage serve, give, and love other people. Let's don't live like the religious leaders, like the rulers who rule over people. I don't know anybody that's in power that exercises authority over people that's happy. But I know a few people who serve other people, who wash feet, and they've got circumstances in their lives that aren't favorable, but they're so joyful. Like, that's what I want, because the way of Jesus is always the better way. But I want to give you something that will help you, and it's this. Pray for people that are in your circle of rivals. Pray for them. Three quick examples from my own life. I was in seminary school many, many years ago, and there was a student who uh, I got some praise from the professor. He got some praise from the professor. But I, um, he was a good student, and he did better on me um, when he did better than me on the exams. I didn't really like that and didn't like him. And by the way, he did better than me every exam. But I didn't like that. I began to see him as my rival. But I thought, I'm going to, you know, instead of wishing him to fail, I'm going to pray for him and pray that he would do well. And I did, and it felt good. I remember years ago, I was in a golf group in Coral Gables, Florida, just four guys. We played golf every Friday and some other days when we could all arrange our schedules. And this one guy talked a big game and started playing a big game and would talk me down sometimes. And he became my rival. And instead of wishing him to hit his ball in the weeds in the water, I prayed for him. 
to, that his game would be good. I prayed for him for his soul. I prayed for him for his spiritual walk. And it felt so good. Several, many, many years ago, 28, 29 years ago, uh, Susan and I met in Colorado and went on our first few dates. But another guy liked her. I could have wished for him to fail, but I prayed for him to fail. <laughs> and it felt so good, so really, really good, but I digress. For real, you have a circle of rivals. And here's the thing, you, let's be honest, you cannot control your feelings. But you can control praying for somebody. Look at me, everybody look at me. You can do this. You can pray for people. And here's what I've found. That there have been times in my life where I pray for somebody and I can't control the feelings. I pray, I can control the, me praying for them and feelings can follow. Or I find myself not just praying for them but celebrating their success. And y'all, that is so freeing. Greed, I want more. Envy, I want you to have less. Here's what the scripture would say, does say, long before uh, we got in this room. Proverbs 14.30 is your reference. I was trying to preach this uh, sermon without quoting Proverbs 14.30, and I couldn't do it. I was convulsing in the floor. So here we go. Uh, and Alex and the team are going to come up because we're about to close. Proverbs 14.30, the back half, part B of Proverbs 14.30 says, Envy rots the bones. Can, you, uh, can we agree that what the scripture said thousands of years ago has been borne out by modern science today. Any doctors, any nurses in the room can tell you that if you spend your days wanting what you do not have, feeling like what you do have is not enough, and resenting others who seem to have more, it's going to take a toll on your body. Those thoughts will be inward strife for you because envy rots the bones. But the first part of that says this, a heart at peace gives life to the body. I was thinking about the world we live in, just like the church in Corinth could be squeezed into the mold of the Corinthian way, not the way of the cross. And I was thinking about the world that we live in, and we're, we're touched by this, we're not immune from it. But our world today, how many of us are really at peace? How many of us have a heart that's really through the drinking and the drugging, the divorcing and the suing and the killing ourselves and others at alarming rates, you can just look and see that we're not at peace. And to the church at Rome, it was written one time in the fifth chapter, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Oh, the peace can come from knowing that you don't have anything to run from, anything to hide from, anything to prove. That the good news of the gospel is you can be at peace because you are loved and forgiven. Therefore, we have peace with God. Fast forward to the 12th chapter of the church at Rome. As much as possible, live at peace with other people. God understands that some people aren't going to choose peace. That's why Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the peacemakers. Where we, you, can walk into a conflict bring peace because your heart is at peace envy will do what to you when you spend your days wanting what you do not have envy will rot your bones
when you spend your days feeling like what you have is not enough, envy will rot your bones. When you spend your life resenting what others seem to have, envy will rot your bones. But Jesus promises a heart at peace. Would you stand and I'll pray over us. Father, let your word take root in us. I pray that no trip today was wasted here being in your house and that you would move among us as we move out of here in a moment that you would continue your work. And the enemy is waiting to snatch the word out. Mark chapter 4. We've sown a seed of your word and it is true. But the enemy would want to snatch it out and choke it out by the cares of this life, the worries and the deceitfulness of riches, the lust for other things. The heart that envies. Thank you for teaching us about love. And part of it is a massive part that love doesn't envy. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Church, before we go, we're going to sing, of course, and we'll have a service host come up and give you a couple of reminders as a church family. We hope you'll stay for that. But the altar is open and we are here today. We would be honored to pray for anybody today. It could be something that God stirred up in you in this moment. It could be something you brought with you today or something you're already starting to worry about this week or something you're rejoicing in. You come today if we can pray for you. What an honor.